Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick, and we're here to begin our series of positional reviews for the 2023 season. A, a good season, I think, at least from most people's regard. I know a lot of a lot of people are very disappointed with the ending, as am I. But we're going to start with the defensive line today. And here joining me for that, as appropriate, is Brandon Croxton. Brandon, how are you doing? Hey, Ken. Great to be here and always excited to talk D-line. <laughs> there you go. All right. So I think the defining characteristic of these defensive line and the way I'm going to remember them from all the Ravens defensive lines of all time is that these five guys were really iron men. Not only did they play a lot of snaps, and we'll get into that, but they they divided all the snaps among just five players. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Um, usually, most seasons, five D linemen is just not enough. I mean, most teams need seven, eight, maybe even ten D linemen if, if it's a particular in, injury-filled uh, season, but for five guys to play all the D-line snaps, that's pretty impressive. Um, you know, shows the durability that all of them had and the really the stamina of them taking all of those snaps over the entire course of the season from from, from just five guys is pretty impressive. It's, uh, this year, Brent Urban looks like he played – he did play all 17 games. So it all – all five of the defensive linemen, as far as I can tell, with the exception of Broderick Washington, who, who was sit a healthy scratch for one game, so mm-hmm. played every game. The other thing I mentioned the number of snaps. The if you if you <laughs> add up the total number of snaps divided by the total number of plays, which is what I've done, the Ravens averaged two point two zero defensive line snaps per play. If you break that down a little further, that means the average Ravens defensive lineman had to play 44% of the snaps for the year. Now, there are certain iron men across the league who play a lot more than that, but 44% of the snaps for a rotational defensive lineman is pretty darn high. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, it's, especially when you consider, you know, you're, t- you're including backups in that um, that get very little and you have guys like Matabike, who I think crossed the 60% for, for the first time in his career. And yeah. I think uh, Pierce was right around there as well. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just, just to fill that in, Matabike has a 65% and, and Pierce at 55%. Those are very high, high totals for players like that. And I think we, we also, from what happened this year, by the way, one of the reasons that 2.20 is so high is that the Ravens didn't have a lot of three and four outside linebacker packages this year. There's kicking an outside linebacker inside, uh, what I would call rush nickel. It was very common where they had only one one defensive lineman. A lot of teams do it. Um, the Ravens did really did not do it, largely due to a shortage of outside linebackers this season. They had three guys they really wanted to rotate all the pass rush snaps for, and they didn't. They wanted to not overtax them. So only a handful of snaps the whole year were those guys all on together. 
Right. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in years past, like with Wink Martindale, you, we often saw the, the race car packages where they had four offensive mm -hmm. linemen on the field. At a, I'm, I'm sorry, outside linebackers on the yes. field at, at one time. And maybe in, and in those packages, you might have one defensive lineman or, or zero um, rushing the passer. And they were pretty consistent about having two defensive linemen at, at the one and three technique uh, for every pass rush down. So yeah. Yeah. It's okay. interesting. getting a small amount of feedback on your end. Are you tapping okay. something or something is, is uh, clicking in, but anyway, we continue okay. just some technical problems that occasionally occur here. We try and solve them on the fly and not do the editing here. Uh, if you think about where this line was last year, particularly going into 2004, as it appeared where they would be heading into 2000. Uh, to 2024 going as appeared where they'd be in 2023. It's remarkable. So going to camp last year, only Travis Jones was signed for the 24 season. Now Washington signed during camp to an extension, which was a big relief at the time. Thought it was, it was a huge mm -hmm. uh, step forward. Pierce re-signed during the regular season, of course. And now it looks like Matabike may be tagged and may, may stay a Raven because, you know, his value is, beyond even what the, the tag value is there's a pretty good chance that a pretty good chance he plays for the Ravens this year there's a very very good chance that he gets tagged if he doesn't sign a long-term deal prior to that if they can't work it out um and then Brent Urban a, another guy he's a free agent but he may well be back as well right exactly um uh yeah I think the the big question heading into this offseason will be about Matabike um, whether they are able to sign him to a long-term deal or even if he plays on the, uh, the franchise tag, I mean, that would, that would really kind of hurt things that they want to do to improve the team uh, in other positions, but probably keeping him is probably the number one uh, priority for them at this point. And yeah, he, he's vitally important because he was just so vital to this defense and had such a huge year. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about each of these players individually, but uh, uh, how about Anthony Weaver? That's, that's the other big loss, I think, for the Ravens. Uh, you know, it really looked like my, my prediction all along would have been they would have lost one. And then it looked like they might get away with none because McDonald was, was uh, you know, cruising to the finish line with only two jobs still open. And mm -hmm. the Seahawks really entered late in the um, in the interview process for him and then eventually took him. And uh, his deal was incredible in terms of what he got as a first-time head coach. Uh, but then Anthony Weaver, you know, I, I understand that he probably wanted to be the defensive coordinator in Baltimore, and it might have been a case of either him or Zach Orr. But it's also just knowing who that guy is as a leader of men and whatnot, it, it's a, a shame to lose him from the Ravens staff. Yeah, um, he, he's a great leader and, I mean, very proactive when in practicing. You, you see him, it looks like he, the defensive lineman in him, you know, wants to jump in on a drill and just do the drill with these guys. But he's very hands-on, a great teacher of, as well as a great leader. Um, he's he's going to be missed. And you could see the improvement of – um, you know, particularly Travis Jones um, and the development of Broderick Washington over the over the last couple of years. Um, he, but he uh, yeah, he's he's going to be missed. And, you know, 
finding good defensive line coaches that can motivate um, a defensive line to uh, work hard in practice, work hard in training camp, and to, you know, figure out the rotation, you know, the best rotation during for them during the season and keep them healthy and fresh during the season is such a big challenge. And he, he really excelled at that this year. And hopefully the Ravens can fill that uh, for next year. Yep. Yep. Very, very big position they fill. That's, that's one of the things. I mean, Harbaugh has, has some coaches have been lost. And obviously, you know, the fire Harbaugh people, as if they needed any more fuel to the fire. Um, you know, that the loss wasn't enough. We'll point to the coaching and say, no, we're letting the wrong coaches go. We should let Harbaugh go and, you know, promote McDonald and this and that. I mean, I, I want to point out to folks that Harbaugh is the one, his, his silo and the, the organizationally, the Ravens are very responsibility defined in terms of, of how they make decisions like this. It's Harbaugh's silo where those hirings are being made. I mean, he's he's the one who brought together this coaching staff as it is and created this incredible pool of promotable people that of course they got snatched up after the Ravens had a big year and he'll probably lose more in the future. That's how the Shanahan and McVeigh and Reed and Landry and Lombardi um, coaching teams, uh, uh, trees develop. Who's the, who's the giants coach who had both Lombardi and Landry as his offensive and defensive coordinator in, in the, in the 58 championship game. It wasn't Weeb. Was, no, Weeb was a coach it, of the of the Weeb, Colts. Weeb wasn't the coach. Yeah. Um, boy, I I I don't know, but yes, I do. <laughs> I do know. I do know that story. I can't remember that head coach that had them though. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, it, some credit has to go to Harbaugh for a fantastic hiring job, and if that has to be replicated, so be it. And I think that that you know he's what he's earned as much as anything else. First of all, is some freaking respect. But second of all is how about some money? Not 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 for his personal salary. He makes a ton of money already. So I'm not saying that. But how about some money from Bishotti invested in additional position coaches that'll really bring value to the organization? I think it played out this year. They hired Chuck Smith, and our you know Wilson is gone, and uh, and Weaver of course, and um, you know just it, they all deserve some off cap money to help develop their staffs. I hope they'll spend some in scouting in the front office as well, because um, the guys they develop there, whether it's analytics or, or uh, Hortiz in the scouting area, uh, the other people under, uh, under DaCosta, uh, terrific, terrific talent. And, and they, they really need to need to spend outside the cap where they can to derive advantages against the rest of the league. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I find the fire Harbaugh contention a little bit silly. Um, also, he's absolutely one of the five best coaches in the NFL. I mean, he's a great leader. And being able to improve this team through coaching and through being being that teacher and finding the Chuck Smiths that, you know, just focus on pass rush, finding guys like Denard Wilson that just focused on the D-backs, like finding these guys and really figuring out pro- proper roles and developing that staff and being able to be, and when you develop a good staff and you have good coaches, you're going to lose good coaches because other teams mm-hmm. want to follow what you're doing and they see the success that you're having. And it's, it's a natural byproduct and kudos to him for always going out and looking at looking to find 
the best coach to come up behind because it, uh, one of the dirty secrets in the NFL is not all coaches do that. They hire friends, they hire even relatives, they hire guys that, you know, they're with the same, they have the same agent. So they want to help their agent out and you know, find a guy in their network and Harbaugh goes far and wide to find, you know, really a lot of the best coaches out there. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, there's been, there's also been the complaint that who's going to want to work for Harbaugh because, you know, he's a guy that the, that Bishotti will never get rid of. And I mean, we just proved it out. Look, I mean, you have, you had this, this plethora of people who wanted to work. Anthony Weaver was waiting to wait for what I would say is an extra year at least as a defensive line coach to try and become defensive coordinator. You have Zach Orr sitting there. McDonald went on basically a one-year internship back to back to Michigan, which, by the way, incredibly creative problem-solving there to get it done. I don't know whose idea it was. It could have, might have been Jim Harbaugh's idea. I don't even care. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it was a wonderful idea to get that. And in the end, Har, you know, John Harbaugh would have had the – ability to say yes or no to that to promote him too early if that was what was going to happen here but it just timing wise it really worked out perfectly and thinking back on this I'm, I'm thinking maybe when wink left and he said he did he what what you know they mutually parted ways i don't i don't honestly believe wink was fired i think harbaugh would have been fine with him um playing out the last year of his contract but i think wink saw the handwriting on the wall that he was going to be replaced after the next season by um uh McDonald because that that had already they'd already gone to to set that up and he said I don't want to do that so why don't you let me go now and I'll just sign a multi-year deal somewhere else I'm still a hot coordinator at this point and you know honestly um in it's I'm not trying to be revisionist in terms of history but I always thought that you know the multi-year deal was what really played heavily there and it's now pretty apparent why that might have been Right. Yeah, exactly. And and to counter that is why wouldn't you want to come work for Harbaugh? Because it is a stepping stone for so many players. I mean, I'm sorry, for so many coaches. Um, I mean, we've seen the guys that have come through here. Leslie Frazier um, came through here as a defensive back coach and got hired as a D, D coordinator. Our our new nemesis, Steve Spagnolo, was a def- was a uh he was, I think, a D-backs coach or maybe a linebacker coach, but he he was a, he was a defensive assistant on this, and he got the defensive coordinator job with the Chiefs. Mm-hmm. And then we you, you were seeing Wilson and Weaver coming in, and they've become they've gotten promotions too at other places. So it's a great stepping stone. You you may or may not ever get the succession into the head coaching job for the Ravens, but. I mean, there's 31 other jobs out there, and we, we seem to be filling. <laughs> we seem to be filling a lot of them. Yeah, yeah and you know, the the point I want to I want to make sure is emphasized in what you just said, which is really important, is that a position coaching role is a stepping stone to a coordinator role, and you definitely don't have that with a lot of teams. I, I've I've often thought that the Ravens' defensive coordinator position should be one of the most highly sought after jobs in the entire NFL period coming into a great structure they've learned and they've built culture there that is still here with Harbaugh. And so whoever steps into that job, whatever young guy is fortunate enough to step into that job has a, is on the fast track to be a head coach somewhere. And that's why people want it. And if you don't want that for our team, what's wrong with you? 
I mean, seriously, what's wrong with you if you don't if you don't want that for our team? And it it stability at the top and good hiring decisions at the top that aren't driven by you know BS. Like I don't want to have this guy outshine me, or I want my relative to get it first, or whatever. I mean, I I think you know it's just, it's so it's so critically important and central to management of the franchise. And I'm glad Vashadi basically is in charge of this because even though Harbaugh is in charge of his own silo, I'm sure he does have to. Um, respond to Bishotti at least annually about why he made certain decisions about personnel in his in his group. So if, if, he, if he wants to run his department differently, you know, if this were a company, think about it that way. You can do it. You can do pretty much do it however you want, subject to budgetary constraints usually. If you want more money, you got to ask. And and if you make some questionable hiring decisions, which are causing the group to screw up as a whole, then you have to answer for that. That's all that that, that ownership should provide, but they should be responsible to, to ask all of those questions in a good way. And I think they have, I think, you know, clearly the, the Ravens success on the coaching side, um, it, you know, has been remarkable over the years. And, and uh, uh, yeah, they really had a, had a little bit of a, of a coaching tree going under Billick at one point when, you know, Marvin Lewis left and whatnot, and Nolan uh, Del Rio uh, to be head coaches elsewhere. Uh, it's just, a, it's been a, it's been a great run for, for this organization. I think I have to credit, while a lot of it goes to Harbaugh and the correct hiring of coaches, I have to credit Bashadi for for being a guy who demands that out of his number two. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. The the Ravens defensive coordinator position is that's you know one of the premier stepping stones for head coaches. It's right up there, probably with Andy Reid as offensive Andy Reid offensive coordinator and a yeah. Vague. <laughs> coordinator too so yeah the enemy still has not been a head coach right he still is not he's been the outlier but yeah yeah, i mean so many guys after that you know before him have gone on yeah yeah it's certainly the 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 reed staff in philadelphia was fairly legendary in terms of it uh it coming to but anyway let's get back to the defensive line here let's talk a little bit about the guy who's on everybody's minds right now is justin matabike and the great year he had i mentioned he played 65 percent of the snaps this year yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was an all-pro in every sense of the word. Um, he improved as a run uh, run defender, and he had just an absolute uh, awesome uh, season as a pass rusher. Uh, he had a career-high 13 sacks, um, and he tied the NFL record with at least a half a sack in 11 straight games. Um, it, it, he, he broke the record for any uh, – interior defensive lineman with that with that sack streak and he, he tied it actually with chris jones but yeah oh he cut oh okay i thought okay well yeah so all right so well still very impressive to you know him and chris jones to be the only ones there and um you know also the second on the team with 64 pressures um mm-hmm. right behind Clowney and you know played the most snaps of his career um i think you mentioned like he played 65 percent of the snaps during the season and was you know just a great season from him so one of the things i was worried about before the year and i got to admit people are always looking like when am i going to say i was wrong about something here's one okay that on, on matt at bk in 2022 played 59 percent of the snaps so he's, he went from 59 to 65 two things happened in 22 one is he didn't play as well in games where he played a lot of snaps okay number two was he didn't play as well at the end of the year Whatever fatigue elements were part of his season in 22 that contributed to that, 
did not happen again in 23. And that is a massive jump forward. Um, obviously, had all kinds of per snap productivity gains this year. But the, the, the actual ability to play, you know, six percentage points more of snaps, which is 10 percent more snaps, really, um, is is remarkable. And I did I did not think that would be the way it would go. I thought, you know, if he played 47 to 50 percent of the snaps, he'd be more productive than if he played 59 and keep him on pass rushing downs. They played him on tons of rundowns as well here this year. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, testament to his conditioning in the offseason. Um, whatever he was doing in the offseason to improve and get himself into playing, playing shape and to play so many snaps and play them at it's even a higher level than he was playing last year, that's a real testament to all the things that he was doing as a uh, in, in the offseason. And you know, that's, that's one of those role models that you want to keep on your team. I think – you know, so so many players need to really, you know, learn from Matt Abike and I mean, even Lamar Jackson is you, you go into the offseason and you work your butt off to improve, you know, a couple of areas and you can see a, just a huge uh, jump in your success as a player. Yeah, well, I hope he's he is one of those guys long term who buys into the the offseason is just the second season kind of thing and and uh, and keeps his eye on the ball. A lot of players, I think, as they get older, they probably know they have to keep their bodies in shape, but they may not be trying as much to go for positional coaching when they're when they're 28, 29 years old, 30 years old, certainly uh, to try and learn new things that they don't know. I, I don't know if there's a good example of a player who's continued to do that for his whole career. There's certainly lots of guys who've been workout fanatics and, and, you know, have have kept up Matt Burke's career as a Raven, you know, into his thirties was, was really remarkable in terms of beating the curve of, of decline, you know, of doing that. But there's, I don't know that there's guys who are still trying to pick up the positional secrets from a new perspective as they get older, the way we've seen from players like Lamar at a young age, or, you know, some other pass rushers, certainly at a young age. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, loved what he did as a run defender this year. I thought he was a lot better than he than he had been the previous year. He's certainly a much more effective penetrator. And the Ravens, um, you know, a mix of body types and a mix of styles is nice in terms of defending the, the run. The Ravens didn't commit a lot of resources to defending the run this year. But one of the things they did is they, they they mixed up some styles, particularly in the base package. The base package, you know, you got a couple outside linebackers who did a pretty good job of setting the edge. You, most of the time, we were talking about either Robinson or Clowney on one side with Harrison on the other. But on the inside, Matabike was there a lot of that time. Uh, he's there with a very different type of two-gapper in Pierce and a very different type of space denier in Urban, who uses his leverage very well, uses his long arms very well to maintain his position. He's extremely urban, extremely conscious defender in terms of creating space for others, as opposed to making a play for himself. Matabike is a C three tech shed three tech make tackle kind of guy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And um, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, I was going to talk about passing event, but if you had anything more to say about okay. run defense, I thought we'd move on. Oh yeah. Like, um, you know, they, they had struggles as far as a, a little bit in uh, run defense as a, as a unit, but 
when it came, when it came time for them to actually stop the run, they were really able to do it and do it pretty effectively. Um, you, you could see it in certain job in certain drives. Um, look at the second half of the Rams game of the Rams game. I mean, even this Chiefs game, um, the Chiefs had a lot more success in the first half than they did in the second half running the ball. Um, and so when it came time to shut down the run, um, they, they, they were really able to do it. You know, that's a great point. And there are game script considerations for what happened there as well. I mean, obviously the Ravens gave up, I think, 4.5 yards for the year. And I have to look to see if that's exactly correct. But it's, a, it's about that. The Ravens did not have many opposing kneels the entire year. They did not have many times where the opponents ran into the Ravens um, when the Ravens knew it was coming because they tried to run out the clock because they were never behind the whole year, basically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it, there wasn't a case of they had some of those on-the-margin, really easy opportunities to stop the run that accrue to a team over the course of a normal season. They didn't have those. Um, and and it's I, I don't think their, their yards per carry was too much out of line otherwise. It's just another point I would make about it. But even more, I'd make the point that their pass defense was so much better because of you know the, the stylistic or schematic choices they made to give up some yards against the run that it it completely made sense. Right, exactly. Yep. Uh, in, in terms of Matabike, there are you at all concerned about his a lot of his sacks and a lot of his play requiring the Ravens compound pressure to develop? Um, so I think it's probably going to be unfair to expect them to have 13 sacks a year for the next three or four years. Um, th- that's probably not likely, but he is a guy that he, he's by far the, the Ravens best inside penetrator. And he's a very good and, in the, in the league as a whole, he's a very good inside uh, pass rush guy. You could, you could probably expect, I'd say, you know, maybe somewhere between seven to 10 sacks a year um, at as many pressures or, you know, maybe even a little bit more um, over than he had this year, but the sack total is going to go down. Um, This is a career, this was a career year for him. Um, It, it's it's not really fair to expect 13 sacks a year <laughs> or or to even improve upon that but he he's still very effective and you still you know you really have to weigh on what what you're able and willing to pay for such a good interior pass rusher right. i i'm i'm with you all the way on that i guess Jadavian Clowney and Van Noy and Oway for that matter who are all kind of good pressure rate guys and not necessarily great finishers really helped Matabike this year. I mean, there's a, there's a, uh, Matabike did some great, had great follow-up pressure. He chases the quarterback down very well for an interior defensive line. Extremely quick seems to, um, you know, have a iron lock on a quarterback when he gets his hands on him, they just don't get away. And I'm th- thinking about this now. I think he did let one get away in the final game of the year where he, where uh, uh, Pierce or somebody else ended up getting a, a portion of the sack. Yeah, I think he did because I think he was he was party to both sacks and one of them he didn't have any part of it and the other part he had half with Pierce. But uh, uh, he's he's a guy who's who's certainly, as the quarterback's leaving the pocket, that's still Matabike hunting, hunting ground there in terms of uh, being able to take down a quarterback. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it, he he's so quick that it, it's not a sure thing that a quarterback can turn the corner if, yeah. if uh, Matabike is in pursuit. So, yeah. Uh, so anyway, they will, I, I'm sure they will try and, and, uh, sign him before they have to tag him. No one ever really wants to be tagged. We saw some of the acrimony that created, um, wasn't just that. I mean, obviously they weren't agreeing on a number between Lamar on the team, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really something that would be much better if they can, if they can sign him early and they don't have any part where he's on the tag because money will have to be manipulated immediately as soon as that uh, happens and then they'll they'll be limited in terms of what other moves they can make for 2024. Now I don't expect them to make a lot of a, a lot of signings in, in during the um, the early period this year and the large reason being because each one is has a potential offset to their fine set of compensatory picks they'll get in 25. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, the Ravens are rarely that first day of free agent wave um, type of uh, team when it comes to signing uh, players anyway. Um, they, they're, they're great about figuring out, picking and choosing the guys to, to sign. If they sign somebody early, it's, you know, they're, they're, it's rarely be to, it's rarely that they do it to, um, you know, that hurts their, that the compensatory pick formula, um, mm -hmm. they'll sign guys to one year deals or something like that. Um, and then later, uh, and then, you know, they, they also great at waiting till after June one to sign guys as well. And, um, you know, they, they, they're very smart about not being about being patient, um, in free agency and not improving the, the team in every way possible. And sometimes that's deciding, is this guy worth a, a big money contract and us losing a third or fourth round pick a year from now? Yeah. Yeah. They, they've, they have done remarkably well. The one time where they kind of violated their own rule was with the Nelson Aguilar signing last year, uh, where they gave up a six and they knew what exactly what was happening at the time. They knew it was a, a fairly significant amount of trade. I can't say it didn't work. I think the Ravens ended up getting approximately the amount of value minimum that I would like to have seen. But I got to say, there, there's been some there's been some things recently where I and, and most notably the Orioles trade for Corbin Burns. Um, they gave up. I, I know every Oriole fan outside of me seems to absolutely love that trade, but the Orioles gave up an unbelievable amount of young talent in the, in the, in, in the three bagger of Ortiz hall and a 34th overall pick that for that to make obvious sense to me. Now Ortiz might not have had a spot to play in Baltimore. Maybe they could have figured it out. Maybe they couldn't have, but it's also a case of maybe they could have gotten full value for him trading him somewhere else. And, and one year out of Corbin Burns, which is what the the Orioles are going to get out of this, um, could look like a very, very bad trade if Ortiz ends up being a ball player. So, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Ravens, I think, are, are extremely well positioned in terms of this. But most importantly, since they draft well, they always have to make the heartbreaking decisions of letting players go and picking the ones that are really central to their to their success to maintain those, letting the other ones go. And uh, they've just done a remarkable job of that. And then, you know, other teams talk about how the Ravens have raped the compensatory draft pick system for, you know, 
X number of picks over a 20-year period. Well, guess what? That's a byproduct of great drafting, guys. That's what happens. That's why it's so important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, it's it's always important to have good problems. The Ravens drafting so well and making these hard decisions on who to keep and who to lose is is a good problem to have. I'd rather us be fretting over losing Matabike or Queen or or stone and rather than us looking at it's like who are we going to sign none of our none of our draft picks from the 2020 season have panned out now we have three or four holes that we need to fill through free agency and we're going to overspend for those so have, have good problems try to have as many good problems as you have as you can and drafting is a, a good problem to have Welcome to the Arizona Cardinals organization, what you just described there. That's uh, that's exactly what we don't want. Well, let's move on. Um, let's talk a little bit about Michael Pierce, who had a great year. I thought 55% of the snaps we, we mentioned early. Uh, probably no move in season was I any more happy about than re-signing Pierce in December. I think it was December anyway, for $7.5 million for two years. Yeah, absolutely. Like he's still one of the best uh, run stoppers in the league, and it, it was it, it was disappointing, you know, that they had to renegotiate his deal and uh, at the beginning of the season to, you know, to kind of make him a free agent at the end of the year. But them being able to keep him and have him, uh, you know, resign him for a couple of more years, it's that's very important because yeah, at the beginning of the year, they, they only had uh, Travis Jones signed. Um, and now they're, they're going to have uh, at least three back and possibly four if Matt Abike. Yeah. It could even or, be five. Possibly five. Yeah. yeah. It could even be five. They, yeah. Cause they could still sign urban as well. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that comes up every time we talk about Michael Pierce, well, not every time, but, but frequently you talk about Michael Pierce is his weight. And he lists now at 355 pounds. I think basically the Ravens are past the point where they're trying to make excuses about his weight. You know, Syracuse, they had at 342 or something. And and Adams, those guys never wanted a weigh-in, by the way. They never wanted a weigh-in. Adams was up there around 360 pounds. He was a very large man, just a, a Coke machine of a man. But but uh, Pierce is in that same mold, obviously. he's He has come to camp overweight before where he could barely, you know, basically move on the field. Um, but I thought we saw pretty good mobility from Pierce at his weight this year. He's an incredible athlete. Um, there was one um, next-gen stat that had him running at, I think, 17 miles per hour. At um, it, He was he was chasing down a, a running back or chasing down a wide receiver. I can't remember the exact play mm-hmm. that it was. But, I mean, 350 I laugh at. He, he's probably closer to 360, 370, if if not more. And for him to be moving that fast at 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 whatever the, the proper weight is, nobody wants to get that. That's that's an incredible athlete there, and nobody yeah. wants to get in front of that either. Right, and and definitely uh, locks on and 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 takes people down as a tackler. Um, Oh, Ed, I don't know if you've looked at any of the statistics, but particularly for interior defensive linemen, it looks like PFF is going through a period right now where they are probably changing their definitions of missed tackles some. And so I go out there because there's multiple sources on, on missed tackles, as I say often. PFR has them and PFF has them. 
and you can obviously anybody can keep them themselves. And it, it is there is definitely a component of judgment and subjectivity to calling for missed tackles. So what I try and do is I usually try to try and quote the PFF missed tackles most of the time because of, of all organizations that do it, that is a group that I trust to do it the same every time, even though I think they're extremely harsh. And one of the things we see with the defensive line is try and organize the defensive line and find out where the median is for tackling. It does not look. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Like they have adjusted their system to like current levels of missed tackles. So they may be looking at a three-year backwards looking average and then comparing people to that. And they say, oh, look, his missed tackle rate is 13.9%. And the average was only 9% for his position before. And now he shows up with a you know a 52 grade or something. And Pierce is one of the guys who still is okay as, as he comes out on that. But uh, uh, a lot of defensive linemen look really bad in that category. So before you say, oh, my God, all the Ravens suck at this or they're, they're you know these aren't good, just sort the position if you have the PFF package and, and take a look at what the missed tackle rates look like. And you're going to say, oh, the whole league can't tackle. You know, in the whole league of interior line. Yeah. And plus, you also have to think about the front, the front lines, you know, their job isn't necessarily to just make the tackle. Their right. job is to clog up holes. Their job is to slow, slow down the runner or slow down, slow, slow down the running back or slow down the, or, you know, whoever, whoever the ball carrier is. Um, but they're they're often engaged with with an offensive lineman while they're doing that. So they may be trying to tackle with one arm or or just a shoulder or something like that. So a missed tackle rate on a defensive lineman is not as bad as it would be for a linebacker or a safety or somebody like that, where their job is to make the tackle and bring the ball carrier down as opposed to clogging up space and kind of making a mess as which defensive lineman do right so pierce is a guy typically who's who is the responsibility of two people uh in most blocky assignments usually you won't get away without that what pierce has been i think very adept at doing is not letting one of two blockers get to level two and this used to be casey hampton's thing he would hold i'm just relentless casey hampton probably had the most defensive holding calls against him of just about any lineman of his era because he would he would just be there he'd make no bones about trying to take out two for one on his thing. And the Steelers linebackers then would flow behind that, whether it was Ferrier or Foot or whoever it might have been at the time, and and flow to the ball very naturally if 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 he could get away with this hole. But uh Pierce doesn't really have to do that. It doesn't seem that way as much. Um I wouldn't say there's a, a high degree of penetration in his game, but he, he knows how to deny space when he has a shoulder in either way on a, on an offensive lineman, force that second lineman to maintain the block. And a lot of times, you know, it, I'm not saying he's perfect at this because nobody is, but, but he, he can, he can prevent or delay that either guard or center from moving up into level two and taking out a linebacker. And that's where you you know, yeah. the, the, the uh, that's taking the other, other 
other teams' rooks away from them if, you, if they could do that. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very important. Yeah. Uh, Pierce, uh, underrated as a pass rusher his whole career. I think he's, it's honestly been quite a strength of him, but he's never really been used as a pass rusher until this season. He mentioned, I don't, I don't think I actually did mention he's, he's 30, whatever now. And he just played this most snaps of his entire career this year. And the big upgrade in snap total for him came from the Ravens lack of three outside linebacker packages. And the fact that for most of the season, most of the early part of the season, anyway, he was Matabike's running mate on third down. So he'd be he'd be the other defensive lineman in the game. I thought they had remarkable um, synergy as a stunting duo. A lot of times he was the over, uh, Matabike's the under. That creates an enormous dilemma for the two linemen responsible for blocking those two. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we, we were just talking about Pierce's athleticism. Like, he, he wasn't always the guy that would be the under guy that just – runs into, you know, that guard or, mm-hmm. or center, he's looping around and that's a lot of man to be looping um, mm-hmm. and to be trying to stop when he's starting to get a head, full head of steam like that. So yeah, like he's just, he, he's, a, is, he doesn't look like the prototypical athlete, but he's an incredible athlete at his size. Let's take a moment because I sometimes talk about this, but I'm sure I'm losing people in terminology or description without a picture. But let's talk about the responsibilities of the underneath guy in a stunt, a twist, whatever you want to call it, uh, a game of any sort, who may be coming from three tech, and that would be the case with Matabike usually, crossing the face of a guard and slamming into the shoulder of a center. Talk a little bit about that from, from your own perspective playing that position. Sure. So basically what you're trying to do um one is you're trying to set up it's essentially setting a pick for in 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 basketball like you you crash into that center and you open you open up the the shoulders of that center so one because the center is expecting to engage in the other defensive lineman so instead he's getting picked from the side and he's not expecting it. And basically you're, 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 you're attacking and you're hitting one, sh- one shoulder of the, of the offensive lineman instead of a lot of times either two, what, what we call two gapping, which is just engaging with an offensive lineman and you're man on man. You're, you're basically your whole man is taking on half of the man of the, of that center. And so it opens it up. the The looper goes around. You're you're confusing so, so that guard. When you say when you say he goes around, let's be careful here. That looper is going to come from one tech on the other side, and he's going to yes. loop around past the guard whose face yes. you crossed. Yes, and you're and and you're and you're replacing where your three tech was. The looper is replacing that man. And what happens is the that guard is now tilting inside to the to the to the pick guy essentially and so it allows that the looper to get around and basically only only either go completely around the guard or again you're only engaging half of that man with your whole body and so you have a strength advantage and you're able to push you know one one defensive lineman pushing with both of their hands is a lot is can create more force than any offensive lineman with just one shoulder or one arm. So 
you have a strength advantage, you have a leverage advantage, and that enables you to get through um, through the offensive lineman. Okay, and the and the underneath guy then, as that guard is peeled off of what effectively you could call it a double team, but the center didn't know it was coming necessarily. By the way, knowing your feelings about centers and what kind of cheap shot artists they are, I'm sure it's, it must feel good. It's very fun. It's very fun to get them every now and then. <laughs> so, so the the centers kind of got half of that three tech coming across. The guard has half of them, but they both kind of have turned shoulders. The center because he didn't yes. expect it. The guard because he had to turn inside to to catch that crossing player, the player who was crossing his face. Yes. And so neither of them has that great a block on the underneath guy, right? Right. Yeah, because both both guys only have one 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 of their arms or one of their shoulders engaged with that guy. So in in order for basic, basically to make that block, I mean, that's a heck of a team block by, between the guard and the center in order mm-hmm. to in order to get get that guy uh in order to get the pick guy without him being able to push through one of one of them, at least one of them. And then the guard still has an additional responsibility, That's even good. if he can to hand get, off that underneath guy, he still yeah. has to get then he back. Still has to it's get almost the, like a he reach still has block. to get the looper. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. All right. And so in your experience, and I've always said that that I think how I watch film, I always see that the underneath guy is typically the guy who derives the biggest advantage from the twist, which is surprising to people because that guy's kind of setting a pick. But oftentimes those guys are the really dominant three techs who know exactly how to take care of half a guy when that's all that's left on them. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, just think about basketball on a pick and roll. When 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 the picker sets that pick, he rolls to the basket, and a lot of times you, you don't. The roll guy doesn't have the has a better angle to to get an easy shot on a basket. So when the so when the with the guy with the ball he can just easily pass it in. It's, it's kind of the same concept because when, when you bang into that center, you've now basically opened up a hole that you can just push forward and you have really a direct angle right to the quarterback in that, in that instance. And yeah. All right. Great. I'm glad we took a, took a few minutes to do this because I think your explanation of it adds a lot to, to, to how people can, uh, can understand this. But uh, great stuff, Brandon. I really appreciate having you on for that. Um, one of the uh, – let's get back to Pierce for a second. Fantastic game versus Arizona. Stopped two fourth-and-one plays individually in that game. Might have been his best game as a Raven ever. Yeah, he was, he was a force that game. He had the, I think – did he have a sack that game as well? Or I think – or or maybe a, he, he had another big play. I think um, maybe a pass block or something. But, I mean – Two fourth fourth down stuffs is you know that's monster stuff right there. And I, I'm I'm thinking I could be wrong about this, but one of them was a stuff was just a mm-hmm. takedown on on that. And I think the other was a, a a deflected pass on fourth and one that that turned the ball okay. over. So okay. either way, incredible in, incredible game. And and Pierce, a guy who he seems to be very comfortable to gaffing. He seems to really like the bull rush. Uh, incredible at generating that leverage underneath. Maybe talk, talk just for another second about about what is a defensive lineman who's a little shorter, um, still has I guess decent arm length in Pierce's case, but but is a little shorter and and very heavy. What's his best angle to get leverage? What's his best mechanism to get leverage? Well, as they always say, low man wins, and um, if if you if 
uh, offensive lineman has a higher pass set and they're high and they're a little bit higher, he can kind of push. Have, he can push that offensive lineman's arm up. To, you know, to, so that offensive lineman doesn't have as much power and he can rip through or um, or or even just bull, bull himself through. Because if, you know, being the lower man, you, you have that leverage and it's hard for an offensive lineman to, you know, gain any power with their hips or 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 their legs when, you know, when they're higher and they don't have the advantage of having having both of their arms on a guy. So it's kind of one of the first things they teach you, even in seventh grade football is don't stand up as an offensive lineman. Right. You, know, exactly. <laughs> you yeah, just, yeah, you want to, yeah. you want to stay low, but that is one Positive. of the things I love to see on film is when a run play or pass play, either one, I love to see it is when a, when a defensive tackle who, who really out levers his opponent just makes the offensive lineman just stand straight up, get that reverse mm-hmm. C in his back here, which is a good thing in terms of, of dying slowly in the pass rush, but is, is something you, you definitely don't want as your first choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a yeah. blocker. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Outstanding. Let's go and talk about Travis Jones a little bit. I know we're running a little long here. Okay. Hopefully we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get this going. Big step forward in year two, I thought uh, 39% of the snaps he played uh, initially only as a backup nose, but we saw him a little bit as a three tech this year, a few plays in there where he was on the field with Pierce. I don't have an exact count on that, um, but but I, I need to look back and do it, and I need to exclude certain plays where they had four down linemen and they were in goal line or short yardage or something where they were obviously defending the run. Uh, but I, I still thought we would see some of that this year. Yeah, um, I thought he was, you know, I thought he was solid as a as a as a uh, on the against the run. Um, I, I, he he was primarily the the nose tackle, but did play like you said, a, played a little bit of three tech and. Um, you know, he's, he's improving as a pass rusher. Um, he's, he's, he, I think he can be a good three tech. Um, and I guess depending on, you know, whether Matabike is here, here or not, like, I think he would be the primary guy to kind of step in Matabike's role as the pass rushing three tech if, if he's gone. Um, but he's, he's a different player. Matabike is more quickness. He is mm-hmm. power. Yeah, mm-hmm. he is a powerful, powerful, <laughs> powerful guy, and um, he he I, he's he's got some quickness to him. But I mean, his game is power, and he he you. I thought he was a breakout candidate. He definitely took a step forward. I still love the potential of him. Um, you know, maybe in year three or maybe even year four um, to be to be kind of more of a complete defensive lineman. Yeah, to to me, I don't even think he needs he has gains that he has to consolidate this year. I'd really look and and I think I think that all about a lot of players that that you know if they're if they could be the same as they were last year, it would be terrific, you know. But in in his case, that's that's not the case at all. I think he could take an other step forward for sure. And 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 there are things that he can improve, and there's also ways schematically I think he could be used that'll emphasize more of what he is. If I could quickly go back to what he did at Connecticut. Um, they really, he was the guy that you had to figure out how to block in Connecticut's defense. They didn't have much else. And so he was constantly getting double teams and whatnot. I think that served him very well at, at the NFL level. Um, and I think that the Ravens are going to really want to build a lot of their defense about figuring out how to get him individual matchups the way potentially that, uh, you know, Chris Jones gets that treatment. 
he won't be ever probably the pass rusher that Chris, Chris Jones is, but he still could be a, a force, I think, if you can get him consistently one-on-one with a guard or a center even in some situations. Yeah. I mean, even if if he's able to just draw double teams and he can't be blocked by one guy, that's a huge benefit to a oh, team, yeah. even if he's not the guy that's you know finishing plays or getting sacks. I mean, if, if people can't block him with one guy, then you're – you, you can you can work around that all all day as a defense. Yeah, yeah you do you do it's I, you need some guys who can take two blocks, but you also need some guys who can make plays. And and I think I love the the you know if he if he truly can take two guys and do what Pierce does, I think very well in terms of not getting really moved, making it very difficult for that second lineman to get to level two because you know there's 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 a subtle difference between requiring two guys and really requiring one and a half guys the way I talk about it if there's a double team at the line of scrimmage but it's very easy to get that lar- even a large defensive tackle off his pins a little bit so that the 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 one primary blocker gets him and the second guy can can climb to level 2 that's not nearly as valuable as you know being what Tony Siragusa used to be described as 342 pounds if I'm not going anywhere <laughs> yeah Absolutely. Uh, anything else about Jones we missed on? Oh, yeah. I mean, he finished the year as Matabike's wingman in these passing situations, which I thought is tremendous move forward for him uh, in terms of what the what the coaching staff probably thinks about him. And, you know, it, it'll basically be, even though it won't be McDonald, it'll basically be a lot of the same people making decisions actually it'd be not no McDonald and no Weaver. That is a big difference. But it'll still be, you know, Zach Orr, who certainly has seen what he did last year it'll be you know another linebackers coach who probably has seen um if if he's promoted from within i haven't heard it yet who that guy is have they do you know if they've they yeah, designated i don't him? think they've i don't think they've filled uh linebacker position yet okay that'd be great if they that could be another place where they hire somebody somebody really interesting and uh and uh, you know a good a good young opportunity there somewhere but uh but with in in the case of jones i mean it, it's it's on tape what he can do now um, in, in terms of being the the wingman in a, in a three. And I don't think it's necessary that the Ravens are going to go back to three outside linebacker and four outside linebacker packages as often as they did with Wink. Probably not. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, it's, if, especially if you, if you have Matabike, Matabike and Jones is a really nice interior, um, can, can really push the pocket and create a lot of havoc inside without having to use an outside linebacker. So, yeah. All right, couple guys we we want to make sure we talk about Brent Urban, uh, extremely solid backup uh, who at age thirty two uh, tied for the third most snaps of his entire career, um, and he played twenty four point six percent of the snaps, which doesn't seem like a lot. I think it was three oh nine total by PFF. I have him for a little bit less because I don't include penalties, but you know, very solid year again for for Urban. All right, I think Brandon's adjusting something while I'm doing this. We'll do his primary used as as the five tech in the base package. Uh, also plays a little bit of three. You can't be exclusively a five tech in this league anymore because there just aren't enough base package snaps to make that a worthwhile opportunity. But play some five, play some three. The other thing that Urban maybe was not recognized for is the Ravens played a lot of single out, or not a lot, but they played some single outside linebacker packages this year with uncovered. Um, uh, nickel, I would call it, where they played three down linemen and one outside linebacker instead of the normal two and two. 
And that's a, it gives you a little better run defense if you do that. And Urban was typically the guy who was, was playing on the edge in, in on uh, on those packages and and definitely something that that has value. Still think Brandon's working on some things with regard to his setup here, and we'll just uh, keep going. You tell me when you're ready, Brandon. Um, uh, Urban certainly early, early in his career made his name as a run defender, manages space well, uh, does creates plays for others much more than he makes them himself, but uh, but you know made them when it's necessary and uh, cleaned up for Clowney twice in that San Francisco game. Kind of a nice fitting. Maybe the best game of his entire career, certainly the best game of of the year for him, uh, where he cleaned up twice uh, to uh, uh, to take down um, once might have been once Purdy, once Darnell. I think we have Brandon back right now. So we're talking yeah, about Brandon Urban. That. Not sure how much of that you heard. I'm I'm sorry, I didn't hear any of that. So okay, I'm sorry. yeah, what? I just you want me to just talk a little bit about you know a couple of notes I have. Sure. Yeah. So um, he, he had three sacks during the season, which were was a career high for him. And and actually, uh, four of the five defensive linemen had career highs in sacks this year. So that's pretty pretty impressive. Uh, that N- none of them, only Matt Abike really blew out their career highs, but um, the other three, you know, managed to get you know get career highs. So, um, but um, yeah, three and you know, very solid. Uh, um, at the five technique and even played a little bit uh, on the edge. And I don't know exactly what the formation is called. It was some kind of nickel formation where he was kind of the outside contained guy and, um, you know, play, played solid there. He, he wasn't the best at keeping outside contained every time, but um, was, you know, did, did log some snaps there. I, I call it on the uh, uncovered nickel. There's five five defensive backs. You want to make sure you get that in every package you you, you kind of call out. But it's three defensive linemen and one outside linebacker. And we did we did talk a little bit about this. Just having the versatility to do that has real value. If you ever get yourself into trouble where you don't have a healthy set of outside linebackers, that was true for the Ravens for parts of parts of this season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I think one of the other things you look at a player like urban, like, and they could go into next season, they might draft a defensive lineman, in which case urban could be on the outside looking in, depending on how health works out. But he also has been a very valuable guy at the end of the roster. Cause he's a handshake guy. And they only have a certain number of players that that really works for, you know, it's the Daryl Worley's and used to be Anthony Levine's of the world who didn't mind being cut every year and creating an extra roster spot, essentially for the team to slip somebody else onto the team then move him to IR, then you re-sign your handshake guy. And that additional fungibility of those roster spots at the end is extremely valuable to the team. The Ravens this year used every one of their eight IR DTR spots, which I thought that number was way too high. I also thought it had been reduced because the Ravens had been taking advantage of the system. (laughs) I thought the rest of the league basically was singling out the Ravens for this sort of treatment. But uh, uh, you know, Urban is is at the heart of allowing the Ravens to do that. Players like Urban, with you know Daryl Worley and others, are are uh, are really there. Yeah, absolutely, and, and and they're very good about you know really churning the back end of that roster and getting value out of guys. And I mean, even even the practice squad promotions, things like that. They, I, I think, you know, those two years when 
they were just decimated by injuries. They they came out learning more about how to work that back into the roster and came out better for it. And you know, guys like Urban, you know, are incredibly valuable because, you know, they become immediate when you cut them, they become immediate free agents. And, you know, he can be a guy that's on the practice squad and, you know, gets call ups or, you know, can even be signed to the active roster if somebody gets hurt. And of course, that's assuming that they draft or possibly bring in a free agent um, defensive lineman at some point. But yeah, yeah. How would you rate the Ravens' chance, the likelihood that they'll? Okay, let's start with sign a free agent defensive lineman. Okay, so of course Matabike, you know, clouds <laughs> clouds everything. If they if they're able to retain Matabike, I think it's very low that they would sign mm-hmm. a free agent. I mean, maybe you know, maybe a veteran minimum guy or or close to something like that, but it wouldn't be a substantial um, free agent pick. And then, but I do think they would have a relatively good chance of drafting a guy, whether they sign Matabike or not. All right. And I, I left out a group there, the undrafted guys where the Ravens have been very good about finding a, you know, a next player. I, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about is do they need to develop a new Patrick Ricard? And for that, would they like to have another defensive lineman who can also give you time at fullback if, if that's what you want? Or, you know, it doesn't it really never seems to work out as certainly not as well as it did with Ricard, that you have a true emergency defensive lineman when you need one. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, early on in his career, you know, that Ricard was that. Uh, in some ways, he yeah. he was going to going to you know, multiple meetings, and he was he was uh, uh, there as needed. Um, I just I I don't see the Ravens if the if they retain Matabike, I don't see the Ravens drafting a defensive lineman this year. I, and if they did, I think it would be it would be very late in the draft. And by the way, completely agree with you that bringing in a free agent defensive lineman for a million dollars a year is the normal kind of a Ravens activity. You could also do it via the UDFA process, but it's somebody who mm-hmm. is one extra insurance policy for your last DL spot. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you, you, you always want to be constantly having um, defensive linemen and, and young defensive linemen. It, it's, it, it should be a draft and develop um, position. Um, like, because having having this year where you only had five defensive linemen playing, th- those are the rare years. This this is the true outlier. You, you and you can't necessarily count on all five of your guys uh, being healthy next year. Um, so you you want to have somebody that's able to come in and play and um, you know make make a reasonable contribution. So yeah, it could be I, I, even if you keep Matabike, I think it you know, probably maybe a fourth, fourth, fifth round pick or later, or, or, you know, and they've been great at developing undrafted guys. And it's a great, it's been a great landing spot for undrafted guys. I mean, Michael Pierce is one of them right there. So yeah, it's, yeah, they, they're really good at finding those guys. So yeah. Yeah. Certainly be excited about that. Let's move on. Last guy we want to talk about is Broderick Washington here. Signed to a three-year extension last OTAs slash camp. I think it was actually at the beginning of camp they did it. Um, and his 2024 salary is guaranteed. Now, the reason I say that is his three-year three year, three year um, 
extension is really just starting. He played last year, I think, under the the standard kind of a vet min. He got some signing bonus and whatnot. And then his three-year uh, period starts now. So he's actually signed through 26. There is about a break even if they wanted to cut him next year. But this year, there's a substantial amount of of uh, dead money if they cut him. So he's safe. He's he's not uh, he's not going anywhere. But he did take a step backwards in 2023 in in a, a, some key metrics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, um, this is a bit of a letdown year. Like um, 20, 21 and twenty two, he really flashed. Um, he he was a, he's he's been a reserve defensive lineman, but whenever he came in, he was really able to flash and make plays, um, stops for losses, or 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 just really show show that he was a capable uh, player. And this year, like even when he was in there, you barely noticed him. Um, it it happens on occasions. Sometimes you see after a defensive lineman signs uh, signs an extension, sometimes they get a little fat and happy. <laughs> For, to, you know, for back of a letter, lack of a better uh, phrase of that. But, um, you know, yeah, he, he needs to bounce back this year because, I mean, the Ravens aren't going to tolerate, um, you know, the step back that, that he kind of had this year for multiple years after an extension. Right. I wouldn't call this a crossroads season, but the Ravens could effectively replace him with a, with a vet men guy at about the same dollar amount. And so it's it's going to there there will be a question after the 2024 season for for Washington. But in terms of the the way he stepped back, his missed tackle rate was seven percent in 2022, jumped to seventeen percent. Again, PFF may have changed their definition or something. I don't want to get too tied up in that. This one though, there's no doubt about it. batted passes. He had six in 2022, which is a terrific total, um, mm-hmm. but zero in 2023. Not good for multiple reasons. His defensive wins, now those are tackles that he makes which does, don't keep the other team on schedule. Sometimes it's determined by um, expected points. I believe the PFF ones are decided by yardage relative to the old football outsider's definition. And he had 26 of those in 2022, but only nine in 2023. So not making as many tackles. The tackles he's making are not as impactful in, in terms of her loss. That's obviously down. And his percentage of the defensive snaps was down to 35.6%. And I don't didn't actually look up what his percentage was the year before, but I know he didn't play as much in 2023 so you know right now he's a he's a pure backup run defender they pretty much used him as a you know a three-tech run defender this season yeah yeah um yeah and yeah you just gotta hope he he kind of refines the form that he had the last uh the previous two years and takes that step forward because they're you know they they're gonna potentially they're they're really gonna need him if they lose Matabike. Um, and even if they're able to retain him, he's still he would still be a valuable backup if he's able to find that form again. Yeah, yeah. And is, what would be if you're trying to set the expectations bar for Washington for this year? What would you what would you like to see from him in terms of of either role or playing time or productivity? Any measure that you that you'd call out for him? So I'd I'd want to see. I'd, I'd probably want to see him raise his uh, snap percentage back up to in the at least in the forties. Um, him be able to give um, Michael Pier- Michael Pierce had a huge amount of set uh, of of 
snaps for for a nose tackle. Um, that's another that's another worry about him being able to continue that year in and year out. Um, him being able to um, give just give anybody a, a, across the defensive line a blow here and there and reduce their snaps and reduce their wear and tear. Um, but but come back to being that impactful player. Like I mean, you you just said like his defensive wins went from twenty six to nine. Like you you want to get that back up you know, at least in the high teens, if not in the twenties and, and yeah, batting, batted passes, it's, you know, it's, it's a skill and it's a little bit of luck as well. Um, but it's, uh, you know, you, you just want to see him make more plays and kind of show the guy that he was because he, 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 he popped as an emerging player these last couple of last couple of years. And he, he was just not that this year. All right. And I guess the last question I'd have is that for the defensive line as a whole is how important is it for this defensive line to get a little younger at this point? I would say it's, it's important. Um, and again, Matabike being the unknown, um, but you, you always want to be drafting and developing um, or at least developing young, young defensive linemen it's a it's a very tough position to play there's always injuries there's you know because guys fall on ankles guys fall on knees you, you get sprained ankles knees pulled muscles and you lose you, you losing three or four games and for you know an entire defensive line to be, be as healthy as they were this year is you know that's the rare feat so being able to have multiple guys that are young, ready, and able to contribute is vitally important. I mean, Pierce is, Pierce has been injured, a guy that's injured most, most years of his career. This was the rare exception. Um, You know, Brent Urban is, he's going to be what, 33 or 34 um, Mm -hmm. next year. Um, That's, that's getting old, even though, you know, it, Matabike, Jones, and Washington, they're, they're younger, but you, you just want to be able to churn and keep churning and, you know, bring in more guys and bring in some young guys. Yeah, it's it, it worries me a little bit about Urban in particular, even though he's, he's valuable to the team in terms of being, you know, on the roster by handshake and not in actuality when that first cut is made because it gives you that the, the extra players. I do think this is a this is potentially a year where the Ravens find some guy, whether he's a UDFA or a or a draft pick, that they really like in camp, that they fall in love with him. And Urban might have to start the year on the practice squad, and the Ravens just hope he's still there when their need arises. So it wouldn't it would not would not shock me if that would happen. And, and honestly, then it means it really wouldn't shock me if some other team grabs him because it's one of the positions where the um, replacement level certifiably drops significantly as the year goes on. It's on the defensive line. It happens at cornerback. It happens at a lot of places. But but it, it, on the defensive line, you definitely have a shortage. And one of the first places opposing GMs look is on the Baltimore practice squad. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've we've been poached <laughs> plenty of times, and you know, yeah, you you just always want to have that next guy coming in the pipeline, though. Brandon, always a pleasure to talk football with you. These are only supposed to be 30 or 40 minutes long, but I thought we we had some great material you went over on, on stunting and twisting there. I really appreciate your your background and understanding on this. Tell folks where they can talk football with you online. 
Sure. I'm on uh, Twitter at Brandon Croxton five. Um, looking forward to um, an Oriole, big, big Oriole season. And, um, you know, looking forward to seeing the moves uh, that the Ravens make over these uh, next few months. So, yeah. All right. Other folks out there, if you'd like to be on a film study short, we will be starting another historical one. I'm thinking of a couple ideas, but you, if you just have interest in a historical pod and doing one with me, whether it is at the player level, the game level, the play level, whatever it might be, hit me up with a DM on Twitter. I'll get back to you very quickly. Uh, and as always, uh, other ideas are fine too. And we'll figure out how to, how to make that into a pod. Brandon, thanks again for coming on. Thank you. Love to be here. And we'll talk to you next time on Film Study.